Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and today we welcome back author John Patrick Hemingway, grandson of the legendary writer Ernest Hemingway. Greetings, John, from Florida. Ah, well, yeah. Greetings to you from Florida. That's how I meant. Greeting yeah. me from Michigan. <laughs> I'm from Michigan, yeah. <laughs> it was a privilege to be able to take you around to some of the um, locales here in northern Michigan during your last visit um, that your your grandfather immortalized um, in, in a lot of his writings. Um, we were able to uh, see some of the sites. Uh, for instance, um, Windermere Cottage, which is it's, it's really tough to get in there. It's still in the family. And, and Judy Mainland, a local friend of mine here in Petoskey, her husband passed away two years ago, and that was Ernie Mainland, who was Sonny Hemingway's uh, son, and that was Ernest's younger sister, and she took over the family cottage. And, and so it's, it, everybody that comes up here and wants to go on one of my tours always wants to go to Windermere Cottage. And last year, Google actually had it on Google Maps as open as a museum from 9 to 5. You can't believe the people that tried getting into that cottage last year. Um, oh my God! <laughs> Ernie used to tell the story of of coming out of the be- the bathroom after a shower naked, and there's three people standing in his living room looking for the tour. So you can imagine all the people that make that pilgrimage here. Uh, when you when you were in Windermere, uh, that cottage that's that's you know it's, it's those are, those are your your family members, not mine. But I identified with certain things, like we saw the markers on the on the wall, how old and how tall the children were at different stages. We kind of wanted just to have you just walk around and experience that for yourself. You know, what, were, what were your thoughts uh, of the of the cottage? I'm I'm sure you've been to you, you you've been to several Hemingway uh, locales around the world. What were what were your thoughts of that humble little cottage that's very much the way it was over on Walloon Lake? To be honest, I wasn't terribly impressed by it. The location of it, of course, was stunning because it was right there on the lake and everything. But I was more how can I say it, uh, moved by his other houses, such as the, the birthplace house and uh, the one in uh, Ketchum and, of course, Key West, and then, of course, uh, the Finca Vahia outside of uh, Havana. I don't know why. Maybe because I don't know why. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, it's just it never really was something that uh, I heard much about my dad or from my uncle Lester, uh, Ernest's brother, and uh, also architecturally too. It wasn't that interesting. I, I found the birthplace house very interesting because it was uh, such a small house and yet very much of that period. And then the other houses as well, uh, think of it he is in Cuba and so that's always interesting. Uh, Ketchum House is kind of spooky because that's where he killed himself. And then there's the Key West House, which I knew from a very young age because my parents would take me down to Key West, sometimes on weekends, you know, just for the hell of it. Yeah, the thing with, with Windermere, you know, it's interesting because at that time coming up here, um, especially with Grace being sort of in the family, she was known as a little bit of a diva, I think, you know, she... We have pictures of her standing on Walloon Lake, very mm-hmm. rustic setting, and she's dressed like she's ready for the opera. <clears throat> you know, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And so we kind of consider them some of the, the first Bohemians, or in, in a sense that it, what, a, what a juxtaposition coming from Oak Park. They never considered themselves wealthy, but they were definitely affluent, and had every comfort uh, in in Oak Park. And then to come up here, twenty four hours get to this little little pond in the middle of northern Michigan where there really wasn't transit, the highway system, the roads weren't there, one way in, one way out, either train or, or by the boat. And that rustic setting where you had to order food 
a week in advance, yeah. and Montgomery and Ward brought your groceries, and just complete different different setting that what they would have experienced in Oak Park. So yeah, it's just it's it's such a rustic cottage, twenty by thirty originally, and with a, with a couple of additions now. But Northern Mission, I grew up in a, in a cottage very much the same in the summers, and, and really had that kind of effect on me. I think that's part of my uh, identifying with Hemingway is coming from a city, and then just being stuck in such a a natural, rural, minimalistic environment mm-hmm. where you're forced to kind of go out in different directions. Uh, so I think the the magic of that cottage was the fact that he always was trying to get away from the cottage in a sense. He's taking all these day trips and hiking trips to all the surrounding forest and areas around here, the rivers. Well, I, I think that would be similar to what he was doing with the Pilar and going out into the, the Gulf Stream, you know, the Straits of Florida. Yeah, I often make that exact same comparison. <clears throat> Because it is a wilderness, very much so. And in that wilderness, he would fight, sometimes I guess people might even call them monsters, you know, these fish which were so huge, okay. Uh, He set a, well, he would have set a record for catching a mako shark, which was something around, uh, I believe, 675 pounds or thereabouts, okay, but he couldn't declare it as record because he was the vice president of the uh, IGFA. <laughs> Might seem a little bit biased, right? <laughs> yeah, no, all the officers could not, you know, partake in any of that sort of stuff, you know. You've made a trip up here to Northern Mission uh, previously. You were in Sydney, Michigan, and you came through Petoskey just for a short period. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was, I think, what, 2010 or 11, I'm not sure. I was passing through there, it seemed almost at night, you know, after having gone all the way up to the UP and then just going over this bridge. And then all of a sudden there was this kind of really fancy looking hotel. I don't know if it was the one that we saw there, but uh, it seemed uh, very well kept, you know, very turn of the century and uh, I was wondering about it, you know, when I went by there. I was like, oh, interesting town. This is a summer resort area going back to the, you know, 1890s for very affluent people came up here from, let's mention like the Proctors, Gambles, the Bissells, Hiram Walker, the Reynolds families. This was air conditioning up here. So in the midst of this wild wilderness, we also had these these very wealthy families coming up because of the clean air, clean water. So you get... get Yeah, this this is something I didn't know. And I was kind of surprised to find that kind of luxury hotel. And I mean, I, I just went by it very quickly because we were on our way back down to uh, where I would have to take a plane, you know, and then go back to Montreal back then. And visiting these areas like up in Encini, I was camping up there one time. I had all these intentions of camping alone with my dogs. And uh, I got way, way, way back to a, where there's a marker where we know Hemingway fish. We can kind of, kind of trace by his, you know, his writing. We get a pretty close within proximity. And I had my camp all set up, and I got creeped out. That doesn't happen to me very much. It was really, I've been in some really wild settings before, but uh, that particular day, I kind of kind of decided to come about five miles closer to town. It was a real rustic area even even today, but back in Hemingway's time, man, that was a, that was a trip to go up there in Decini. A lot of the scenarios that he's talking about in, in the, the Big Two-Hearted River were trips over to the Pigeon River State Forest here in northern lower Michigan also, which they did all the time. And that was rustic over there. Um, I've camped over there also, where I was maybe the only person spending the night in a cold, 
winter camping situation. Did you did you get a sense of of what was kind of so special about that freedom or the or the rusticness that that he's he's writing about the and I and I think you know again the big fish that we just talked about started with those little ten inch brook trouts here in northern Michigan, but that love yeah. of hunting and fishing and the love of the outdoors and that sense of adventure. I think I think a lot of that came from from his time here in northern Michigan. Did you did you pick up on you know what's so special about the woods for us up here? Um, well, I mean, I, the certainly it had to have had a very profound effect upon him because in fact. The first short story that he wrote and finished, and after having read it, read it, he knew that he had talent. Was uh, the Big Two Hearted River, and I can see why because that story is really strange. He's co- combining, you know, post World War One sort of memories with. Uh, his fishing and how everything has to be done in a certain way. It's very methodical. Very meticulous, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And then at one point, you know, and this isn't even the end of the story, okay? At one point, he said tomorrow he was going to go to the deeper pools, you know, where the really big fish uh, were. But he wasn't sure about that. You know, because to go there would be perhaps excessive or dangerous in some way. I think, you know, it was, it was psychology there. It was a sort of a, uh, a metaphor for the fact that there were certain things he needed to understand about himself and his family, and he wanted to go there. But he knew that if he did go there, it would change him, and it would be a permanent change. He wouldn't be able to turn back to who he had been. And so that short story to me is is amazing. You know, he wrote it, you know, when he was 25 or something like that. Yeah. And he defined it as the short story which convinced him that he had talent. Well, and, and there's there's several stories of Hemingway. We could say Summer People, Three Day Blow, and the, the most famous is obviously um, the Big Two Hearted River. But uh, I, I, th- I think Hemingway f- felt a lot of peace uh, in, in in the woods alone. Um, and you sent an email last night to me asking me if my family were hunters or fishermen or outdoorsmen, and I, I grew up around all of that. But where I found my sense of peace was 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 hiking with my dogs. I had two huskies, and I had them for twenty years. And they overlapped, and I love to go out on the river. I love to fish. Be the only person out there is one with nature. But I'm the unluckiest uh, fisherman in the world. So for me, it was just a, a matter of standing out in the river and uh, and being at one with with nature. And I found that with my dogs also. But um, I think you you mentioned something like you, you can find sanity. In a natural setting like that, I think Henry was searching it, for it's that. a kind of a. I used to compare it to a Zen rock garden, yeah, as you're going along with the rake and everything. With every stroke, you're erasing the superfluous to get to the core, to to the source of everything, and that's what he would do with his writings. He would write it, pare it down, go over it the next day. If it was crap, it had to be thrown out, start over again. 
And he would just keep doing that. Like, you know, the Zen master in the rock garden. Okay. And it was his meditation. That meditation is the word I would use. You know, that's, that's how I broke free from the grind and, and, uh, I spent that, spent all that time out there in, in the woods, um, and and then and then you've 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 lived in several different places too, uh, like like your grandfather uh, traveled around. Um, yeah, a number I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> and and you lived quite a bit of time in, in in Italy, and you were telling me about some of your um, uh, your uh, your bike your bike bike rides. You had some pretty crazy. Oh man, I mean, uh, I I'd always like you know, uh, riding, but in Italy, it's, it's a whole different story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here in Florida, for instance, everything's flat for the most part in Italy. No, you've got the Alps, you have the, um, you have the, the climbs that you can find near Genova and the Cinque Terre. Uh, you have mountains all over the country. <clears throat> and I used to do what were called, uh, Gran Fondo which means the long distance, you know, races anywhere from a hundred to 200 and beyond in one day. And, uh, yeah, I think I was telling you about this one, uh, race I was in where it started out and it was raining. Okay. And it just kept raining. That was okay because we were not really up in altitude at that point, but as we started to go up, it started to get cooler. And then as we were going down, it was really cold and I could barely feel my hands in front of me. And there, there were these, uh, you know, rest stops or ristoro as they were calling, and they were being manned by, um, Alpine troops. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Alpini, of course. Yes. And they're famous for their love of grappa. And so instead of offering you a Coke, or a tea or something like that. They had these little bottles about that big, you know, in plastic or something like that, which, uh, you know, anyone who was serving in the Alpini or in the Italian military, they would give them to you every day, you know? And I remember once before that race, someone had sort of said, Hey, you want one of these? And I said, no, I said, and the guy said, I mean, you can't use it. You know, <laughs> like, what you're refusing, you know, grappa. <laughs> and unheard so of, on that way down, I took some of that grappa because it, it did gave me a, give me a sensation of being warm. Not I wasn't being warmed, okay, but the sensation was all you needed just to get down that hill, which was fucking cold. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's uh, and then there were other races, you know, really long ones, you know, uh, twelve hours in the seat and everything, and. Uh, you find all kinds of people that you would even find, you know, professionals who couldn't find a team that year. And so who were keeping in shape, training on these, uh, these grand fondos and you would see them come by and they'd be super thin and young and everything else. I was around 40 at the time, you know, and this guy was going to finish it in six hours. It took me 12 hours to finish the whole thing. You know, <laughs> just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now these moments, yeah. though, you know, during during training for these events, and even even when you're participating in these events, there may be people around at that time. But this is still sort of you inside of your own head for hours and hours, right? In in nature, yeah, in a sense. Absolutely, it's it's your own. You're, you're challenging yourself more than anything else, you know. And that's like riding in a way, you know. Uh, when I would be cycling, you know, and I'm seeing these mountains, you know. 
seven kilometers, 20 degree incline or something like that, you know, and I'd say to myself in Italian, like, chi me lo fa fare? You know, who, who's making me do this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, writing is that way too at times, you know, because it's, it's a demanding mistress, you know, you got to give it everything, you know, and it's, it's personal, you know, and no one can really, it's, it's not something, you know, writers try to get together and like, well, writers retreat. Okay. But mm -hmm. in fact, you know, that doesn't do it. You know, you're going to go back and you're going to be alone. That's it. You know? Yeah, it is. It's you and it's, well, Hemingway in his, in his acceptance speaks, it's, it's a lonely life. Yeah, and locked inside your own brain, pretty much. I know when I'm preparing to write certain things, my wife's talking to me, and I'm just like giving her this look, you know. And I'm just trying to completely block out absolutely everything else, and I find that I come up with my best ideas when I'm just kind of walking around, not trying to actually write. But and then I don't have any way of writing down these great thoughts. I get back and I'm like, oh, you know, oh man, what a I forgot my idea. You get inspiration usually when you're just alone. For me, that's that's my thing. But yeah, that, that's how it happens. You know, it's 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 subconscious. It's there. The book is there. You just have to dig it out. And there is something counterproductive, I think, to a writer's retreat where there's ten people sitting around trying to write. Right? I guess maybe just sharing tips. But everybody, it's such a personal thing. The the process. It's got to be such a different, I think you said, well, first question too, um, before we get to that, are there, are there other times, uh, we talked about being outside fishing, <clears throat> hunting, what other activities do you personally enjoy? Are you a hunter or a, a marksman? Oh yeah. I have, um, not continuously hunting, but was certainly introduced to it, uh, from when I was at least nine or 10 years old. Okay. With a 410, you know, going to hunt, uh, quail or stage hens, that sort of stuff, you know, dove. Yeah, the dove was the first time I went out. We were in Idaho. And uh, I remember that uh, I hit it and I, I picked it up, okay, and it was bleeding. And the guy who was next to me said, okay, John, I want you to hold the head and shake it. So I did. And of course, it separated from the body. And afterwards, he said to me, you know, kind of impressed by that, John, you know, not too many kids your age, you know, would have been able to do that. Well, that's something that's, uh, I sent you a picture yesterday of Clarence with a 410. Clarence was yeah. known to be a phenomenal wing shot. He mm -hmm. passed it on to Hemingway. Hemingway uh, passes it on to Gregory. Gregory was phenomenal, right? I mean, he was winning competitions. Uh, he, won, he won a national championship in uh, skeet shooting against adults in, uh, in Cuba at the time. And yeah, he was really good. And when Ernest heard this, he was ecstatic because it meant for him that he had passed on something that had been given to him by his father to his son. Okay. And I had read about that. And uh, then when I was, I was writing the book, I, I remembered one time when I was out with my uncle Patrick and my dad in Eastern Montana, uh, not, you know, up there in the, in the mountains and everything, but, you know, the sort of the rolling hills sort of thing. And we were looking for stagehands, getting up really early, you know, sleeping the previous night all together, three of us in one bed in this place, which was something out of, I don't know, the 1920s or something. Okay. You went inside there and the, the, the desk, you know, with the, where, where they greeted the clients, there was just cluttered and everything. It says, oh, you got a room, says my Uncle Pat, you know. Said, oh, yeah, sure do, you know. That's <laughs> right there. Okay, we got up way the hell before sunrise. You know, it was freezing out there. 
and I, I come from Los Angeles. So I said, come on up, John, you know, because uh, I just started UCLA. While we were out there, my dad found this bottle, a can of Coke. Yeah, I think <clears throat> maybe one that he had just finished or something like that. And he said, okay, John, I'm going to toss this thing up into the air. He tried to hit it. Yeah. So he did. And uh, my gun there, I don't know what I was shooting. If it was a 410 or probably probably a 20 gauge or something like that. You know, And I hit it and it went way up. You know? And when it fell down, my dad went over to look at it. And his hand was shaking. I couldn't figure out why. And he says, my God, John, you hit it right on the money there because the slug was inside the can. Okay. And I was like thinking, well, okay, big deal. For my dad, this was a big deal because it, it meant that he had passed on something that had been given to him from his father to me. Uh, it was more important than anything else. Yeah, and that, that brings us, you know, to the Hemingway short story, Fathers and Sons. It's that rite of passage. You had taken on the fourth, at least fourth generation of that of that family ritual, you know. Um, yeah. It's not about the bird. It's about the target. It's about the uh, um, the precision of handling it's that firearm. And something instinctual. Instinctual, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. You you got it from your dad like he got it from his dad, and, you know, and, and on and on, you know started writing seriously when you were living in Italy? I think so, yeah. I think it was there that uh, I started writing short stories, sending them out. Uh, back then, you know, I wasn't sending them via email. There was no email. I was sending them off, and then they would come back, you know, da -da, da -da, da -da, you know. And uh, I wasn't putting my name down. I was using a pseudonym of some sort. And I remember at one point, he says, well, this last one, you got really close. You know, but not quite what we want, you know. Some guy in California, I don't know. I was sending it all the way out there from Italy. And well, I just kept on writing. And then I started uh, failed attempts at uh, writing about my dad and everything because I was trying to do it, you know, with um, fiction instead of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And eventually I found a way to write about that with nonfiction, although I had a lot of problems with agents. One agent who just sat on it, another agent who was from the UK, very attractive lady, but kind of sort of crazy in her own way. And um, in the end, I just uh, did it myself with the help of those letters. And uh, <clears throat> well, also my ex-wife who was looking up a lot of the uh, scholars of earnest but who were you know kind of avant-garde okay they were looking at things in a different way regarding his uh his personality his uh, his sexuality uh in his writing looking at it from that perspective and a lot of people didn't like that you know because that contrasted with the the macho image and uh, you know the uber male sort of which he was that but he was also something else and it was when i embraced these people and started looking at what they were writing that it clicked and i said this is the way forward john because i was always worried you know look my grandfather was like that okay uh like the sort of you know dye his hair at times, according to one letter, you know, 
uh, play certain games with Mary and be uh, her girl or something of the sort, you know, I don't know. And then there was my dad and I thought, well, okay, uh, you know, he might be that way. That is my grandfather. My dad might be that way. And what does this say about me? Am I going to start wearing uh, nylons at a certain age or something, you know? Well, you were and then I got over that. And I just said, this is the only way forward, John. You've got to understand this because it's more than just the fact that both of them were trying to find this meeting point between the male and the female. That is something, but it's also something else. You know, it's, uh, it's your line. It's your, your, your place in that lineage going down, up, whatever. Okay and recognizing who my father was that he was very much a son of Ernest. a lot of people in the family back in the day like think of you know greg as a kind of a black sheep of the family and i had sort of incorporated that to a certain extent and even when he would talk to me about these things about you know his lithium and everything else and it makes me feel like a cow he said when he would take it and I would try to sort of be, you know, the, the son who was going to sort of tell him what he needed to do and everything. I didn't understand anything, you know. Uh, finally, in Italy, I, I started to understand things. And I understood what he had tried to do, how he tried to protect me in many ways. But you can't, you know. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's how that went. Yeah. Your second book, uh, Bacchanalia? Bacchanalia, yeah. Bacchanalia. That uh, was published, uh, almost published by Thomas Dunn, but then the whole country, uh, the, the, the publishing house went under right at the time of uh, the, the lockdowns in 2020. Uh, so eventually I published it on Amazon, and it's still there. And uh, I like it a lot. A lot of other people do too. Initially, I had written it because uh, an editor, Thomas Dunn, said, you know, I'd be interested in uh, having you do a series of companion pieces, so to speak, if you will, of your grandfather's novels. And Bacchanelli, in a sense, was that. It was my take on the fiesta, <clears throat> which this year will be the 100th anniversary of the first time he went to the fiesta in 1923. And so I'm going there for that, too. And there'll probably be commemorations and things like that where I'll have to speak in, in uh, Castellano. <laughs> and that's kind of why I brought that up, because I, we were talking about the fine line between, you know, uh, male, macho, feminine, you know, um, female. Ooh, there. And now we've got now we've got things, the, things get crazy, though, when you talk about Corrida. Uh, Corrida <laughs> is you see these guys, you know, dressed up there and uh, something extremely sexual okay and you know they're the tight pants and everything else and the moves and the artistry and the kind of you know uh ballet almost that they perform with these animals and i think it was um Gertrude stein who wanted him to go out there because she had been there a couple of times with alice toklas and she thought that her star student needed to go out there and that he would find it very interesting. He didn't say why, uh, she didn't say why, okay. 
And he went out there and he started to understand. And however, I don't think he came across this one theory, which uh, was from uh, Cartagena, okay, in, in Spain. And there they said that the origins of Corrida depicted, shall we say, a dance between uh, newlyweds, between the husband and the wife. The wife was the bull. Hold on, let me get this right here. Uh, la, 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 la. Yeah, okay. And, no, no, the wife was, was the man, okay, the, the matador, okay. And the husband was the bull. And it was only after a series of, you know, paseos, you know, where they go around the bull and everything, and people are, just, you know, clapping or whatever, if it's done well, you know, or maybe booing if it's done badly. And at the end, you know, after they have poked the bull with uh, the, uh, all these things that they do it with, okay, basically to immobilize the bull in that muscle there, mm -hmm. to make it possible to work with the bull, because otherwise, when you see them, when they just come out, they're extremely agile and fast. And then they put the, uh, uh, the bandieras on, on the back too, and that's also to correct, correct if he's going too much to the left or too much to the right, okay. After all that is done, then after the the, the faena, you know, where they where they do their moves and everything else and make artistry out of this, this is because it's not considered, you know, a sport. It's considered an art form in in Spain. And um, at a certain point, the the matador goes to his uh, assistant, who's just outside the um, the ring there. And he changes his sword, okay, from the wooden one that he'd been using, you know, just to sort of, you know, do his various sort of passes and everything to the real sword, which is metal and which is sort of bent at the tip a bit like this, okay? And there's a reason for it because then he's going in there and most of these guys are right-handed, so I won't show you I'm left-handed, but the way they would do it, they have to go in, okay? They're looking at the bull, he's immobile, okay? And they have to get it in the the big uh muscle there called the morillo okay in an area about as big as uh, i don't know a silver dollar or something like that okay and you go anywhere outside of it you're gonna hit bone it'll go off whatever okay but if you hit that sweet spot there it will go directly into the animal's uh heart and will kill him instantly okay and this they said symbolized the union of male and female in the marriage. <laughs> so this is really weird. Okay, we're talking mixing of genders. Okay, you know, where the man is the woman and the bull is the man. Okay, and he's got to, or the man, woman has to kill the bull. Okay, which is uh, the woman, <laughs> which is the man. Okay, and it's all mixed up and it's, in the end, it doesn't matter because there's union between the two. That line, when I was reading it, and I, I read it after I published Strange Tribe, you know, made a lot of sense to me after everything that I'd seen in Spain, after everything that I'd seen with my grandfather's work where he's pushing the boundaries of what is a man, okay? Where is that point where 
the male meets the female and vice versa. And there are short stories that talk about this sort of thing. Um, one of them was a sea change, which is very instructive in terms of that. You know, you have this couple that's about to break up because uh, the woman has a lesbian lover, lover, and she's waiting outside the bar there. And they talk, and they said it's going to work, whatever else. And then she leaves. Okay, and uh, he's feeling really kind of down about this because you know well, he's just been abandoned by this woman because of her need to stay with a woman. And all right, in a part of the story which wasn't published, um, I got this from uh, one of the, uh, got to say one of the. Uh, of the scholars who was doing research on that sort of stuff and everything. It says that he looks down the bar and he sees this uh, couple of homosexuals. And in it, after that, he says, well, maybe everyone's that way. Hmm. You know? And you, you start thinking, what the hell is Scribner's doing? Publishing his stuff, you know, the uber conservative Scribner's, okay? and Obviously, no one's forcing him to write that, you know. And uh, it was. And people ask me, "Do you think your grandfather?" Could? I, no, I don't think he was. I just think he was exploring possibilities, trying to find out about himself. Ditto for my dad. You know? Well, and then you he, think about Paris in nineteen and, and that period. Everybody that that was that was Ezra Pound love taking people to these these parties were up is down and left is right and male is mm -hmm. female and so he's exposed to this this is this is you know something that's going on at, at a very young age for Hemingway he's in Paris and he's he's witnessing some of this too so I could only imagine he'd be interested or again he you know what what did he do best he explored he observed um that 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 that's what a writer does right pretty much I mean you're taking it all in taking it all in, breathing it in you know you know, we have just a couple of seconds here left, but um, I think one question I'd like to ask you too is uh, that that last name is kind of a double-edged sword for you sometimes. I imagine being a, a writer, you told a couple of quick, funny anecdotes uh, about a cabbie asked you about your last name, or uh, do, you, do you remember that? Um, oh, yeah, and then there was that kid uh, who basically, you know, said, oh, that's an interesting name. He was a, you know, a university <laughs> student, and he just never heard about Ernest, you know? <laughs> not a bad name, Hemingway, it's not and, a bad name. And I said, I'll look it up. You know, I don't know if he ever bought a copy, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I always wondered, too, what, would Hemingway have been as famous uh, of a writer if his, if his last name would have been, you know, Struble or something? I mean, Hemingway, it, that, that name just seems to resonate so good, doesn't it? Well, it does now. Yeah, that's true. You know, because it's been around for a while, but people maybe who haven't heard of him said, well, that's an interesting name. Where's that from? <laughs> Well, I, I can't thank you enough for, for, for joining us, and um, uh, it, it was a pleasure meeting you up here. I hope to host you again up here in northern Michigan. Take you around. Maybe we'll hit a river. I got some spots even Kaz doesn't know about. And, uh -oh. uh, and <laughs> get out to some top-secret spots. Um, he, he's going to see this. He's going to ask <laughs> you about it. <laughs> I'll take him to fake spots because, you know, you always, tell, you always take people. Like when people go to Windermere and they pull up on, the, on a boat, they'll say, is this Windermere Cottage? And, and, and Ernie and his mother used to always say, no, it's about half a mile down on the other side of the lake. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> favorite fishing spots. Well, well again, um, to those listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's past 
with our special guest, John Patrick Hemingway, and a cordial paka paka, which I think John knows that's a salutation. We both have our Russian wives, and basically, oh, yeah. uh, until paka, next paka. time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, John. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao.